We're instructed, Father, that the Holy Spirit is the one who will take this word and either withhold his influences and leave us with a dead letter perishing or come to us, circumcise our hearts, write the law and this word on our hearts so that it transforms us and unites us to you in love. And for that we ask. I beg of you, Father, in spite of our unworthiness, don't leave us to ourselves now. A sermon minus the Holy Spirit is dead. And so come and give us life in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The purpose of the second chapter of Romans is to underline the need of the Jewish people for the gospel along with the rest of us. Everybody, according to chapter 3, verse 9, without exception, is under the power of sin and in desperate need for the gift of righteousness that God freely gives to those who trust in Him through Jesus. But he's focusing on the Jewish people and he's underlining the fact that in spite of all the advantages that they have in redemptive history, they need the gospel still. And the way he underlines this in verses 25 to 29 is by saying that Jews, even though they're circumcised and even though they do many external, ritually correct things, are not Jews. Many of them are simply not Jews. On the other hand, in verse 27, he says, and some Gentiles, in spite of being uncircumcised and not doing some of those ritual things, are Jews are truly circumcised. And the question just explodes for the Jew and Gentile in Paul's day. How can this be? How can you talk as though Jews are not Jews and Gentiles are Jews? What are you meaning? How can you support such a thing? Verses 28 and 29 are his explanation of this. But let's read once again before we give the explanation, verses 26 and 27, so you can see for yourself what I've just said. Verse 26, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision, this is the Gentile now, be regarded as circumcision? So a person who is a Gentile can be regarded as a Jew. Verse 27. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law or fulfills the law more literally, will he not judge you, you Jew, who have the letter of the law and circumcision, but are a transgressor of the law? So not only, I mean, verse 27 goes beyond 26 in not only saying that Gentiles like us if we fulfill the law or keep the law, become Jews, but Jews who forsake the true meaning of the law, 
cease to be Jews and those Gentiles become their indictment at the judgment day. It would be so manifest if a Gentile who was excluded from the people and wound up being in the people, those people will be exhibit A in the judgment case against Jews who had all the advantages and didn't act out their Jewishness and thus were not Jews. So the point here in all of that is that Jews need the gospel just like Gentiles do. And I I want to get at the flow of thought here. We started it last week. I want to dig in deeper this week. The flow of thought from verses 26-27 down into verses 28 and 29. So we can see how Paul's thinking. What's his flow of thought? How would he answer the question, how can these things be? How can you talk this way about Gentiles being Jews and Jews not being Jews? But before I take the train of thought into verses 28 and 29, I want you to see elsewhere than in the book of Romans that Paul really believes and thinks this way about non-Jews becoming Real Jews. So go with me, if you would, to Ephesians 2. So you can put a finger in here, flip four books further. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he's addressing a Gentile people. And we read part of this already in the worship folder. But I want to take it slowly and see if it will sink in here. Because it is a glorious thing about your identity as a Gentile Christian. It says in verse 11, Ephesians 2, 11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now you can hear in that phrase, can't you? Romans 2, 26 and 27. So-called circumcision. Yes, they're circumcised. Yes, they're Jews. But no, they're not Jews. And they're not circumcised. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, verse 12, remember, Gentiles, that you were at that time separate from Christ. Now, Christ Christos in Greek is the translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which is Messiah, the anointed one. And therefore, he's pointing out the regular convictions that the Jewish people had. Yours is not the Christ. Yours is not the Messiah. You don't have a Messiah. Jews have a Messiah. You're outside. Remember that you at that time were separated from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then comes a massive change. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now drop down to verse 19. 
We could preach for weeks on the intervening verses. I don't want to complicate matters. Just keep the central point before you. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So once upon a time, no Messiah. Once upon a time, no covenants. Once upon a time, no belonging to the commonwealth of Israel. No promises, no hope. And now, Gentiles are Jews. That's the point here. Gentiles have in the Mashiach, in the Messiah, the Christ, the seed of Abraham, we have been incorporated into the people of Israel, and we are heirs according to the promise. Now the question arises, Paul, 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 I see that that's the way you think. I see, but I don't see how you can say this. Especially, I don't see how... You can take verses 26 and 27 of chapter 2. Where you said that we become Jews by keeping the law. You see that in 2.26? If you keep the requirements of the law, your uncircumcision will be counted as circumcision. And then the same thing in verse 27. You say, if you fulfill the law then you will judge over the Jews. How can you say that Gentiles are going to become true Jews through law fulfilling and through law keeping? Now that's the question Paul answers in verses 28 and 29. And what makes them so remarkable, these two verses, is that they are specifically answering the question, How can a Gentile, by law-keeping, become a Jew? How can a Gentile, by law-fulfilling, become truly circumcised? So let's read his argument. Verses 28 and 29. This is true. Because he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, the reason this is so amazing is because those two verses are given as an explanation how it can be that by law-keeping, you can be circumcised, though you're a Gentile and uncircumcised, and by law-fulfilling, you can judge Jews, though you're a Gentile and have been excluded from the people of Israel. And his answer is, because... True Jewishness and true circumcision are a matter of the heart wrought by the Spirit. Now think about this for a minute. If that's the answer, it must say something massive about the true meaning of the law and how to fulfill it. 
Because he's not just shooting that answer into the wind. He's responding very specifically to verses 26 and 27. By law-keeping, circumcised are treated as, or uncircumcised are treated as circumcised. By law-fulfilling, Jews or Gentiles are judges of Jews. And then he gives his reason because Jewishness is all about the heart. Which must mean the law-keeping is all about the heart. Otherwise, the argument won't work. It falls flat. There's no connection between 28 and 29 and 26 and 27. If you got one way to become a Jew in 26 and 27 and another way to become a Jew in 28 and 29, they're connected with the word for. Verses 28 and 29 are the foundation and the reason for why law-keeping makes you a Jew. And his answer is not to say, well, because law says you've got to be circumcised. And so if you keep the law, you'll be circumcised. And if you're circumcised, you're a Jew. That's totally not what he's saying. It's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying law-keeping and law-fulfillment makes you into true Jew, though you aren't circumcised, because the law itself is all about the heart being changed by the Spirit. Understanding the inner workings of the law, the very nature of the law as that which calls us to God and calls us to an inner relation to God by the Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 is in the law. And I think the law is a very flexible term for Paul. Sometimes the whole Old Testament, sometimes the smaller part, sometimes the first five books, the Torah. Well, for sure, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomos. Second law. Deutero, second, nomos, law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. At the heart of the book of Deuteronomy, the law comes this verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's the law talking. That's the law. The law holds out this great hope and beckons people into this hope that by the Spirit, God Himself will crack through, go to our hearts, change us, circumcise the heart, cut away all that is of the flesh, leave a soft, bleeding, sensitive, humble, teachable heart where the law is now written so that it comes from within and not from without, And the result, he says in verse 6, is that we may love the Lord our God with all our heart. And the result, he says, is that you may live. That's fulfillment of the law. When that happens to you, when the Holy Spirit comes in, circumcises your heart, causes you to love the Lord your God more than you love anything in the world, and thus unleashes the fruit of love in your life, you fulfill the law. As imperfect as you are. 
That's what the law is about. There's a weighty things being taught to us here. And this is a weighty message. And last week was a weighty message. And it was a, a partially successful and partially unsuccessful message. Because a young woman came up to me and said it solved a lifetime of problems or a problem. And the second person came up, and I'm looking for her. She said, I didn't get it at all. You lost me on the first point. So I'm going to try a picture this week. I'm going to try a picture. I had the kids draw this, and they turned them in. Here's my stack of pictures from the kids in the first service. So all you kids, 40 and over, can draw this if you want. Because I draw it in my mind. I'm going to draw it in the air here, and we're going to use a picture. And I'm going to try to get at the, the meaning and the way Paul thinks here about the law and about circumcision of the heart, about God and about the Spirit. How does this all fit together? What are you saying? Help me be unconfused about this. All right, draw at the top, God. Now, I told the kids, you can't see God, and, you, and there's no way to draw God, so just write G-O-D. Some of them did draw God, and if, you, if you're curious as to what God looks like, you can come up and look at these. G-O-D at the top of your drawing. At the bottom of your drawing, draw a heart. It's your heart, it's my heart. I get God out of this text. He's everywhere in this text, but you can see him there in verses... 28, 29, 29 in particular because we are to get our praise from God and not from man. And I see the heart there in verse 29 because it talks about the circumcision which is of the heart. You see that? Now, in the middle of the drawing, draw the law, book, make a book, the Bible. Draw a book. So you get God at the top, you have a book in the middle, the law, and you have the heart at the bottom. Now, what we've seen from Deuteronomy 36, as well as the implication of these two verses, 28 and 29, is that the ultimate goal of this law between God and the heart, the human heart, is to get the two together in a love relationship. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, let's get it together here. Don't have the heart separated way over here and God way over here. Come together. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. The law is after a warm, personal, father-child love relationship. Not like you have with the mailman. Unless the mailman just happens to be your husband or son. Or the clerk at the store. We have acquaintances that we recognize. We can call them by name. But that's not what the law is after. The law is after a relationship between you and God so that you know Him and He knows you and you love Him and He loves you and you can talk to each other and you can lean on Him and He holds you up and if you come to die this afternoon, it won't be a big change because you've been with Him minute by minute all your life or since you became a Christian and He loved Him more than you love anything. And he's more precious than anybody in this world. That's what the law is after. And you know what? It wasn't happening to the people of the book. It wasn't working. The law was not working that way. That's why the Jews need the gospel. 
That's what he's documenting here. It's not working. The law is there. The heart is here. God is here. And there's no connection going on. In fact, they were reading the book. They were tabulating the regulations of the book. And by and large, they were keeping the regulations of the book. And they were dying. They were dying. The letter was killing them. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. The letter kills. The fellowship wasn't happening. Love wasn't happening. Sweet, deep, humble communion with God and a restful relationship in Him as our Father wasn't happening. It was all legal. It was all external. And their circumcision became uncircumcision. And suddenly Gentiles were getting it. And their hearts were being connected. So why wasn't it working? Answer, something's missing from this picture. And the answer of what it is is given in verse 29. We have God at the top. We have the human heart at the bottom. We have the law in the middle. And nothing's happening here except legalism. What's missing? Tell me from verse 29. Very good. You got it faster than the first service. You're more bold. The Spirit is missing from our drawing. Now, how are we going to put the Spirit in this drawing? Make sure you see that in verse 29. I don't want you to think I'm making this picture up. Let's read verse 29. He's a Jew who's... Is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So we've got to get the Spirit into this picture so that the law stops being dead letter. That's what we've got to do. So how do we draw it? Well, the Spirit is invisible, so we can't draw the Spirit either. Can't draw God, can't draw the Spirit, but we've got to draw it. So let's use arrows because we know the Spirit moves. He acts. The first arrow I want you to draw in your head or on your paper is from the law down into the heart. So right from the page of the law of the Bible down right into the heart. And what we're saying by that arrow is the Holy Spirit must take the Word or the law and Put it in the heart. Or as uh, Jeremiah 31, 33 says, write it upon the heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the Spirit take the law and write it upon your heart? It means this. Whereas once upon a time, the law was heard by you without this spiritual work on your heart and it came to you totally from outside as an attack and as a burden and as a threat and as something you couldn't begin to do, you didn't want to do, you didn't like it, it was pressing you into a corner and you were fighting back either to say, I'm out of here, I don't want these rules, I don't want this law or you were saying, okay, i got to do this because I want God to like me and you turn the law then into a pattern of Climbing and moral achievement by which you try to show yourself worthy of a holy God. One way or the other, you're either going to hit and run away or you're going to climb. And it fails. It kills you in either, in either case. But now it says the Holy Spirit writes it on your heart. The Holy Spirit does an end run around your so-called free will. 
And from behind and beneath your free will, which is in rebellion against God, it explodes it. And writes the law of God on your heart. So one morning or afternoon or evening, this is called conversion, you wake up and say, I love God. I love His Word. And it's all coming from in here now. I love the Word of God. It is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119. I delight in your law and meditate on it day and night. That's the heart of the saint. How did that happen? How does a person stop hating and resisting the law and turning it into a dead letter that kills and suddenly find the law not coming as an attack from without, but bubbling up as a desire from within? How does that happen? Answer, Holy Spirit. You don't make that happen. You do not make that happen. God does that, and if He doesn't do it, you'll hate the law. Or, you'll say you love the law, and treat it as external ritual by which you demonstrate to God and others that you can do it. Which is why this verse ends, their praise is not from men. Because those who stick by the law when it's not written on their heart are motivated mainly not by God, because He's not within them, but by the praises and the strokes and the affirmations and the compliments of other people. It's the only thing that keeps them going. One more arrow. Draw now from the heart, straight up, through the book, to God, another arrow. Right from the heart, through the book. It's got to go through the book. Up to God. The reason for that arrow is the Holy Spirit not only writes the law on the heart, He, according to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, circumcises the heart so that it loves God. So, the Holy Spirit's job is twofold. Get the law into me and get me into God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit, the law sits on me like a burden and a weight crushing me down. And if I don't have the Spirit, God is way distant and I treat Him as... Somebody who may exist or may not, and he's out there to be earned from, if I can keep enough of this law in my own strength. And, of course, it won't work. The last thing I want to put on this drawing is two equations. This is not drawing anymore. These are words. One can go in one corner and one can go in the other. And this is too complicated for the kids, so I told them, okay, we're not drawing anymore, but if you know what 1 plus 1 equals 2 is, you know what an equation is. If you know what 2 minus 1 is, 2 minus 1 is what? Tell me. Very good. There are kids here and they do know equations. 2 minus 1 is 1. Now, here are two equations. These are a summary of this text. The first equation is law minus spirit equals. And the second equation is going to be law plus spirit 
equals. And there are three answers to each of those equations. I'll just list them for you. The first one. Law minus spirit. So that was our drawing before we had any arrows on there. We had the law, we had God, we had the human heart, no spirit. What do you get if that's the way you relate to law and God? No inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Here's what you get. Number one, external religious ritual. Like circumcision. Baptism, maybe. Bible reading, even. Singing hymns, going to church. A lot of external religious ritual. You can get that. Law minus spirit equal external religious ritual. Secondly, law minus spirit equals the need for the praise of man to keep on going. Test yourself here now. This is scary. There's hardly anything that's more inveterate in the human soul than the desire for praise from other people. Oh, how we want to be liked, approved, affirmed, complimented, praised, told. I don't even understand this. It is so deep. Why the taste of a compliment from another human is so powerful and dangerous. But verse 29 says... Those who are true Jews don't get their energy from the praise of men. They get it from the praise and approval of God. Third, law minus spirit equals death because the law becomes a mere letter. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So let's take the other equation. Law plus spirit. Law plus spirit. I began this sermon by praying that that would be true for you. I pray right now that everybody in this room is experiencing in the listening to me. I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now. And the evidence of whether he is or not is whether you find any affections rising for the truth of God's Word. Law plus spirit equals internal circumcision of the heart. A new heart. Law written on the heart. A supple, sensitive, tender, pliant heart towards God. According to Deuteronomy 36, it loves God. So if you find love to God rising in your heart right now, even a glimmer of it, I love you, God. I love you, God. The Holy Spirit's at work in your life. I remember a day in seminary, uh, 31 years ago, 68. It was the fall of 68. My systematics theology teacher, Jim Morgan, was a big, strapping, strong 36-year-old man who died of stomach cancer in six months from this moment that I'm talking about. Shriveled up to nothing. It was the day of the Vietnam War, and people were going barefoot to class and hitting the streets afterwards. And, and uh, Jim was a real radical. And one day we were in this heated conversation after class. I can picture it right by the refractory. I learned the word refractory at Fuller Seminary. 
It's where you eat. (laughs) And there he stood, and in the middle, he stopped, and he said, John, I love Jesus Christ. It was an overwhelming sentence. I'd never heard a professor say that in my life. I love Jesus Christ. It just took my breath away. Do you feel some of that welling up inside of you? If you do, thank the Spirit. It doesn't come natural to love Jesus. Secondly, the law plus the Spirit, number one, results in an internal change of the heart that loves God and is circumcised. Law plus Spirit equals satisfaction in the praise of God, even if no man approves what you do. You can be content and satisfied because you know in Christ, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. I can sweep all of your errors away because I paid for them with the blood of my son. Well done. Isn't that great to know that even our sin-infected good deeds are going to be praised by God? That's awesome. You don't have to produce a perfect deed to get the praise of God. Because if you did, there would be no such thing as the praise of God. There won't be a perfect deed you've ever done until the twinkling of an eye changes you into the image of Jesus. But all the little contaminations or big contaminations of the good things you do are burned up in the fire of Calvary. So that what's left, he will praise And knowing that you will have a smile forever and there will be this mutual delight that goes on and on that so satisfies the heart of the saint that if nobody approves what you do, you're a rock. Don't be a second-hander. When I read Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged 20 years ago, another thing emblazoned itself on my mind. Her hatred of second-handers. Me too. That is, not the people, but the concept. That is, always choosing what you do and what you say, not because of its intrinsic worth, intrinsic worth in the, in the face of God, but because an eye is being cut to what they will think and say about it. That's a second-hander. Don't be that way. Be real with God. If you have God, if through Abraham you are a beneficiary of the covenant, I will be your God. You will be my people. Who cares what people think? And thirdly, law plus spirit equals life because the spirit unites us to God. Okay. Last thing I want to do. That's your picture. Those are the equations. That's my summary. All I want to do now is walk you through a paragraph in closing from chapter 11. So would you turn to Romans 11? The reason I'm closing this way, the reason I'm doing this, is because somebody still may ask after two weeks on this, look, can't I just be a plain, simple Christian? This sounds complicated. Why do we have to talk about being a Jew and 
law written on the heart and circumcision of the heart. I mean, are all those categories important? Can't I just be a plain, simple Christian? Now, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to read a paragraph, which I think answers the question. And I'll comment on it as I go and thus tip my hand as to what I think. But you judge whether what I think is what Paul is saying. Chapter 11, verse 17 and following is another picture. So I feel real warranted to use pictures because Paul did. And one, he's got a tree, an olive tree. It's natural. It's the Jewish people. And he's got a wild olive tree. That's the Gentile world. And lo and behold, some branches are getting broken off of the Jewish tree. And branches are being grafted in from the wild olive tree. And all that's about Gentiles becoming true Jews. So we got the same reality here. And I just want you to see a few more things as we wrap it up with this paragraph. Verse 17. But if some of the branches, Jews by birth were broken off. So yes, they they are being broken off from the people of Israel. And you, being a wild olive, Gentiles, were grafted in among them. That is, you're becoming a Jew now. You're being grafted into the people of Israel, the, the one true people called Israel. And become a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now what's that? What is the rich root of this tree, which is Judaism, or the elect... Israel. And the answer is, the root is the covenant made with Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, flowing up and creating this people. And the essence of the covenant is, I will be your God, you will be my people. And so, we are being grafted in to partake of the rich root of the olive tree. Verse 18, do not be arrogant, you Gentiles. Oh, the temptation here is great, as we're going to see. Do not be arrogant, you Gentiles, toward the branches, those that were broken off. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Oh, how we get this wrong. We today tend to think that 2,000 years of Christianity is the mother and Judaism is the little dependent daughter at best. It's exactly the other way around. Judaism, the Jewish stock, the people who send their roots back to Abraham and the covenant God made with them, they are the mother and we are the dependent daughter. The root supports you. You Gentiles who believe that you are part of God's people, you owe that to one thing, being grafted into them. Keep reading, verse 19. You will say, then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. Now there we get another in... Insight that that the law was teaching faith. They cease to be Jews because they don't do what their book teaches them to do, believe. Through their unbelief, they're broken off. But you stand by faith, by your faith. That's the only way you have a standing in this tree. Galatians 3, 7. It is those who are of faith 
who are the children of Abraham. So if you want to be a child of Abraham that is grafted into this, this tree and drink from the rich root of the covenant of Abraham, you have to have the faith of Abraham and that grafts you in and keeps you in. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that is, the Jews who have been broken off for unbelief, neither will he spare you. Oh, how deceived we can be trying to cling to this tree through tradition, baptism, church attendance, other ritual things, clinging. Oh, I really am part of this tree. I really am part of this tree. And there's no sap flowing. There's no spirit in you. There's just this legal striving to be religious and to belong and to somehow connect with the mailman. Behold, then, the kindness. This is verse 22. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. Look at both of them. Don't just choose your God. Look at the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell severity. But to you, you Gentiles, kindness, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, that is, in faith, otherwise you also would be cut off. Know how many professing Christians mistake their attachment. Verse 23 they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, now he's going to get the Jews back. This is coming someday. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, that is, if Gentiles became Jews, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree for I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, let me just close with this exhortation and explanation for why this matters to me. Is this important? There is no salvation outside Israel. Is that important? There is no salvation outside Israel. If you would live, you must be grafted in to Judaism as it is properly, fully, deeply interpreted for us by the Apostle Paul and by Jesus. Remember the story of the Canaanite woman whose daughter was sick. She cried out, help me. And Jesus said a word you never would dream would come out of his mouth. You don't take the bread of the children, the natural branches, and throw it to dogs. Gentiles, wild olive branches. To which the woman responds, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat crumbs under the table. And Jesus looked into the eyes of this Gentile 
woman and said, Woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you ask. Meaning, faith gets the bread of the children. Jesus taught this. Paul taught this. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. I declare it's important for this simple reason. I love you, Bethlehem and all guests. I love you and I want you to be grafted into the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to drink of the promises of God. I want you to stand firm by faith and faith alone. And I want you, therefore, to be saved and have life. That's why we preach texts like this and unfold these kinds of truths. Let's pray. Oh God, save here in this room. Unite Gentile branches or maybe even some Jewish broken off branches in this room. Unite them to your covenant promises of life by making of us true Jews through writing the law in our hearts, circumcising our hearts to love you, drawing us into Messiah Jesus so that his righteousness can be ours. Oh God, save, I pray. Establish the saints in faith so that they won't ever fail. Lord, into your hands now, I commend this people. May they take away this word and meditate on it and dwell on it. And may the Spirit grace it until we are all firmly engrafted in Israel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.